Today's podcast is a rebroadcast of our original program featuring Dick Simon. With Dick's passing, this will be our tribute to Dick, who was a bighorn legend, who with his kindness, sense of humor, and candid opinions was an integral part of bighorn history. Dick Simon will be missed by all of us. And please enjoy in his own words, his story. Dick, you were an original. Welcome to a new and exciting edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. We continue to strive to bring these stories from your neighbors, friends, acquaintances, and from many who live in our community that you just know in passing. The stories from these people, their successes, disappointments, highs and lows, and twists and turns, hopefully bring us closer together as a community and an appreciation for the people we share our experiences. We talk about these stories that are all different, but also the same. Humble beginnings, a strong work ethic, and taking advantage of the opportunities that are presented to us. Once again, today's podcast is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a presence in our community for over 75 years with unparalleled products and personal service that sets them apart from the competition. They have the ability to provide for you the perfect gift for the special person in your life and Back Nine Greens, who also provide a work of art for your home with their professional design team that works with you to create exactly the landscape that you want to enhance the value of your property. My name is Marty Lockman, and today's Bighorn Podcast is going to be very exciting for all of us. Our guest is Dick Simon, an iconic figure at Bighorn since 1997. Dick's story is about family, personal business success, and a love of life filled with ups and downs, but always an appreciation and positive attitude that has impacted our community in a positive way. It is an honor to now start our conversation with Dick Simon, which started in Provo, Utah. Dick, thanks for coming in today. I really appreciate this. And I know talking about yourself is not something you do quite often, but I think it's a story worth telling. You were born in Provo? Yes, and in a house. Okay. May the 5th, 1936. And mom and dad? My mother divorced my f- real dad when I was like six months old. And so I grew up with my uh, grandparents and my mother there. Finally, she uh, had a girlfriend that went to Los Angeles to go to work, so my mother did not really have a job in Provo, so she left me and my grandparents took care of me. My grandfather was in the trucking business, so actually I kind of grew up with my grandfather and my grandmother. This was in Provo, Utah. All right. And my grandfather, during the war, the World War II, Geneva Seal used to be in Springville, Utah. So he would buy a load of Coke, which is 
puts out more fire than coal and delivered to the blacksmiths in uh, up through Idaho and then pick up a load of uh, sheeting or lumber and take back to uh, Provo and Springville and in that area and sell to the contractors. That's the way he made his living. Finally, he saved enough money. He'd been looking at this uh, farm up in by Meridian, Idaho, which is just out of Boise, uh, between a little town of Cuna and Meridian. So he bought that, uh, actually, 240 acres. But it didn't have a well on it. It was all irrigated. So they'd have to haul their water from Cuna, which was like six, seven miles away over. And finally, he saved enough money because he kept trucking all the time, put a well in, and then started buying some beef and buying some milk cows, and eventually uh, just did farming and turned it into a very profitable paying ranch for him because he turned the dairy into a, a grade-A dairy, and then uh, always had about 100 uh, milk cows, and about 150 to 200 head of beef we raised and then raised everything on the farm for the silage and the hay and the wheat and the barley to feed the cattle. Growing up, I didn't really realize how smart my grandfather was, but my grandmother was always very sick. And so when she'd get real sick, my granddad couldn't take care of me so I would go back to Los Angeles, where my mother had married Art Simon. When I was first enrolled in first grade, her name was Simon, so she enrolled me as Dick Simon. So that's how the Simon name came from my stepdad. But my real name was Brown. I later in life learned to... Uh, meet my real father. He was an alcoholic and uh, a wife beater, and so we didn't have much communication. I saved my money uh, when my father, uh, grandfather, that we, they went to church one day, and my grandmother said, you better drive your car, because we got a meeting after church. And this, uh, I was 16 years old then. So when they came home from church, they uh, set me down and said, well, we got to have a little talk. We've sold the ranch. I said, you what? And they said, yeah, we're going to go on a Mormon mission. And they went to Salinas, uh, California. So then I didn't know what I was going to do. So I was going to move. I had to move back to California, but I didn't know how my stepdad would accept me. So I went to work uh, right away at the boys' market in uh, Los Angeles there in Highland Park, uh, California. So I saved my money, uh, always had, and I had a car that I'd paid for by working on the farm, the other farmers up in Idaho. My uncle, who lived in Provo, Utah, said, why don't you, uh, you want to get a truck? I know, why don't you come and go to work haul for me? So I traded my car in on a truck and trailer when I was 19 and started hauling out of Long Beach, uh, California to uh, Springville, Utah, where there was a rendering plant 
find fish meal and then haul get grain and haul back to the dairy farmers in uh, Artesia and Colton area. And then my uncle would collect the revenue off the haul and he would always give me enough money just to buy fuel and to eat. So finally I kept track and I had almost a $3,000 coming. And my truck was wearing out because I'd bought it used. So I went to him to try to get my money and he says, you know, I don't have it. I've just bought a new Oldsmobile convertible and I've, I've used our money, but I'll make it up to you. Well, there was no way. So I had to find a job. So I went to work for uh, Utah Wholesale Grocery, driving one of their trucks. And that's where I met my wife, Valine. But I was married out of high school, too, to my sweetheart, which lasted uh, about six months. And we had a, a boy. But uh, anyway, Valine and I got married and uh, we bought our first home, which I paid $13,000 for. And my payment on it was $106 a month. And I didn't know if I could really make that payment. But uh, anyway, she went to work for Pepsi-Cola, and we put our money together. And so finally, my stepfather died, and uh, he had a uh, business where he made pumps for swimming pools and other stuff, which was downtown Los Angeles on Alame 14th and Alameda Street. So my mother sold his business and uh, wound up with uh, some money. So I borrowed $5,000 from her to get back into business again because I'd been offered a haul with the Fur Breeders Co-op uh, in Utah, which made mink feed for the minks around Utah and Idaho. So I bought that first truck, and uh, she rode along with me, Valene did. We just saved our money, and so I said to her, you know, we paid for this truck in about a year and a half. I think I'll buy a second truck because there was an old-time driver that wanted to come to work for me. I said, after we buy that second truck, we'll pay for it, then we'll sell it and pay off our house. Well, I had two trucks paying for one, so finally we paid it off, and I said, heck, I'm not going to sell this truck. We'll just take the money, the revenue, and we'll pay off our house with it. So I paid it uh, off our house in less than two years after I'd bought the truck. So we had our home paid for, and then the opportunities came along where the Fur Breeders Co-op offered me to handle all of their freight, which amounted to about oh, 20 to 30 loads a week. They had plants in Santa Barbara, Morro Bay, Turlock, California, Crescent City, and Eureka. They moved, had fish coming out of those plants other than Turlock, and they bought all the uh, stuff to make the meat food from Foster Farms. So it kind of went from there and uh, boom, boomeranged. And then Smith Food King had a carrier that they were using fall out on him and 
wasn't going to move their groceries anymore, so Jeff Smith came to me, asked if I would take over that haul. Well, that would be a big investment because I had to buy 50 more trucks to take care of that haul. We more or less just had a handshake, and that's why I always did business. We didn't need any paperwork. I ordered 50 brand-new trucks, scared, just scared to death, <laughs> because we'd worked so hard to get what we had. And uh, at that time, I'd bought a new terminal in, uh, in Salt Lake City off of the freeway off of 45th South. And then we started buying the homes around it and build it into a 10-acre piece. And then uh, my banker kept saying to me, why don't you go public? And I said, well, why should I? So we had some investment bankers come in, and they were looking over my uh, situation and said, God, we've never seen anybody make so much money uh, on the, off their investment that you have. So they talked me into going uh, private. And then we had some big customers like M&M Mars, Hershey, Stouffer's. I mean, you can go on and on. And uh, we had a great sales force. And then all my children worked with me also. In order to get them more money, we had them get more trucks to make more profit. My daughter, she had took care of the, all the stores. that We had company stores in our terminals. At that time, we had a terminal in Atlanta, Georgia, one in Phoenix, one in Kimberly, Idaho, a big one in Salt Lake City, mainly Albertsons came to me and wanted me to take over the halls out of their distribution centers to their stores throughout the, uh, Idaho, and, and then they built a new distribution center in Katy, Texas, which would take about 75 tr tractors to supply those tr uh, stores that they had in the southeast. So we built a terminal there and had one there, but we would go into areas to begin with where we knew the freight was, and then we would hire the drivers out of the, that, those areas to operate out of our terminals so the drivers could get back home. And it uh, kind of grew and grew and grew, so I had a, uh, a person that had the biggest equity in Swift uh, Transportation, which is a large, large carrier, Today, they run over 26,000 tractors. But they had come at me and wanted, me, wanted to buy me twice, and I turned them down. And then the third time they came at me, I uh, sold my stock in the company. So we had a 10-year non-compete, my boys and my daughter. But uh, we had a heck of a sales force. And uh, my one son, Yen Lin, took care of the salesmen. We had 13 salesmen throughout the U.S. And then K Kelly, my oldest son, took care of the, the terminals, hiring the people and making sure everything went good in the terminals. So we had a 10-year non-compete. After th three years, the guy that bought me out bankrupt the company. But Kelly had stayed on, and he came to me about a year or so later after... I'd sold and said, 
you know, they're trying to bankrupt this company. I said, oh, no, he wouldn't do that. Well, he sure did. So when he took out bankruptcy, he bought everything back on 25 cents on the dollar, and it nullified our contracts, uh, our non-competes. So it let my boys go back into business. They each had their own company. Then we had a couple of terminals that I'd bought in, uh, out on the side uh, where we operated on. And it kind of just went from there. In 1991 is when I joined Bighorn. And I was the 12th member. And it went along really uh, good for a year or so. But then Westinghouse decided that uh, they wanted to change managers. So they let the manager go. And uh, when we bought in, we bought in because this was supposed to be the most exclusive men's club around in the desert. So they gave us that idea, the manager that ran the, that built the course. I'm not going to say his name because everybody knows him. So anyway, Westinghouse brought in this uh, oh, fellow from Florida that really didn't know how to operate a country club. And the sales weren't going as good as they expected. So this uh, new manager went to the hotels and made deals uh, with all of them to let their people that stayed in their hotels give them a chance to come up and play Bighorn for a very low green fee. So it came to that, and then one day, a lot of the own uh, people, including Artie Hubbard and Doc Allred and a lot of them, here come these three buses full of people from the hotels in t-shirts and tennis shoes. So at the time, uh, I decided, well, I'm getting out of here. So at, at the time, I, I called Westinghouse, uh, the guy that was over the properties, and it said, hey, I want my money back. He said, oh, you can't get your money back because uh, when you bought in, you had to buy a lot. And at the time, the lots were 350000 which I could have bought the nicest home in Salt Lake City at that time for that price. And he says, you know, we can't give you the money back. I said, oh, really? So I call Thermaking, which that is the refrigeration unit that goes on a refrigerated trailer. And uh, at that time, we had over 5,000 trailers. So we were on a five-year cycle. So a 1,000, I'd buy a 1,000 units every year. A 1,000 trailers would come in, and a 1,000 trailers would go out. So I canceled a 1,000 units. All of a sudden, I get all kinds of phone calls. What are you doing? What are you doing? And I kind of explained to the man that was over the Thermaking division, what was going on, and right away, quick, I had my money back from the club and the money from the lot. And then Mr. Hubbard got a group of people together, and uh, after the club had been sold uh, to another insurance company, 
bought the, the uh, club back in order to protect their investment because they had multi-million dollar homes here. All of them did. So I would come up and play every so often with Daryl Hubbard, uh, Artie's uh, son. So they coaxed me into coming back to buy back in. So, of course, I did. And then everybody knows what's happened since R.D. took it over. A couple of questions, Dick. Let's go back to, the, to your first success story about the trucking business. Where did you get this work ethic? Because nothing happens without a strong work ethic. I didn't think I ever worked. I just loved what I did. I just figured the more miles I drove, the more money I was going to make. And I would put on a truck on a little over, uh, right at 200,000 miles a year by myself. Uh, so I wasn't home very often when my kids were growing up until later on in life. But uh, Early on, now when you first started and you and Valine got together, she was a bookkeeper and she drove once in a while with you guys went out together on these trips and yes i had a haul for the fur beaters co-op and so i'd haul norbest turkeys out of uh, utah into modesto california and then go over to turlock california and load the frozen meat feed and come back so that was uh, 1500 miles a week around trip so i would make the first two trips by myself and when i got back she would go with me, and then I'd let her drive from Wells, Nevada to Winnemucca, which would give me four hours sleep. And uh, I taught her how to drive the truck. And at that time, uh, when she started driving, there were no ladies' restrooms. So in order to take a shower, like in Winnemucca, that would be the best place we could go because they had good food. And, and they had a shower, I would stand outside of the shower while, while she took a shower. And then coming back, the same thing. And she was quite a pistol herself. I mean, she not only driving trucks, but it is, I understand it drove motorcycles. And oh, oh, yeah. I bought her a new motorcycle down here in uh, Palm Desert. And uh, in two years' time, they had over 13,000 miles on that motorcycle. But the boys would come down, my daughter would come down, and they'd circle Baja or go up to Hertz Castle. Or, but, and then she had two uh, motorcycle gangs here, or clubs, <laughs> that she joined. And every Tuesday and every Thursday, one of them would go somewhere over to San Diego or or somewhere and have lunch and then come back. But then, then she was on the National Ski Patrol, too. And uh, she was on that for 13 years. So she got to go to Russia and uh, Austria uh, with the National Ski Patrol and took my one son, Lynn, with her when they went to Russia. He went on his 16th birthday. But she got to travel the world with the National Ski Patrol. That's crazy. Yeah, and she was the first, actually the first lady ski patroller in the state of Utah at the time. Wow, she was a pioneer herself. Yeah, her and her sister, yeah. So now when you started the trucking 
and, and went into business for yourself, you had to take a lot of risk, as, as you've already mentioned. Oh, I mean, for this, sure. this had to be. Yeah. I mean, you were, you were an entrepreneur when you didn't even know entrepreneurs, and, and you were starting yeah. up this business <laughs> and, and putting your life at, I mean, not life at risk, yeah. but your financial life. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And each step of the way, it worked pretty damn good. Had a lot of luck and a lot of good people. That, that's why. You built this company up, until, like you said, until you sold it. During that time, there was some other stuff that went on later in life. But early on, let's go back to this logo of yours. Sweet Simon. Yeah. The skunk. Tell me a bit, little bit about that, because we see it on your golf cart here. Yeah. Uh, and what's the story behind that? Well, I had uh, traded in a, a truck on a brand new black Kenworth truck. I was unloading that day, and so by law you have to have your name and so and your ICC number and all this stuff on your truck. So I never got back to the Kenworth dealer until about six o'clock at night, and I had to be in uh, San Francisco the next morning. And my wife went with me, so we got there, and here's this skunk on my truck, which an old German guy by the name of Harold Marty played a trick on me because uh, I used to kind of move his paint around when he was doing stuff. So I couldn't get a hold of him, so we went ahead and made the, the trip, and we had so much comment on that trip that it uh, it's just stuck ever since. Yeah, I heard you weren't too crazy about it at the start, but oh, no, once, no. once it did happen, it really became oh, your symbol. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. That's fantastic. Yep. During the time that you were, before you sold, didn't deregulation come in as far as trucking was concerned? Oh, it, and that really... Oh, it made me. It made us, because that way we could go do anything we wanted to do. And uh, for $350 at the time, you could get a... A permit then from the government where you were a journal commodities carrier so it just left the doors open for us to go get it it just made us change things because I used to do everything kind of that wasn't right hauling loads that I shouldn't be hauling that I didn't have the authority to haul luckily I got away with it and then finally when this happened it just let us go crazy. And I had such a great sales force with my son. We knew every shipper, almost in every city and state, how much freight they moved. Because my son, Lynn, researched all that. For instance, one Friday afternoon, we were going to hit Chicago with 50 trucks on Monday morning. And we only had like 18 loads. So Lynn assembling, assembled our freight salespeople on a Sunday night and had them fly into Chicago and got their strategy. And so when those trucks hit their, the 50 trucks the next, on a Monday, after they were unloaded, we had like 75 loads that the salesmen had gone out. So we had way more loads then we had trucks, and so we brokered those other loads out to other carriers. Well, also, Dick, 
You mentioned before you did handshake agreements. In those days, your word was your bond. Oh, without a doubt. And also, even with these clients that you had, it's based on relationships. Right. You have to establish those relationships, and then you're doing business uh, really on a personal basis as well as a business basis. Without a doubt. So when you're on the road as much as you, doesn't it wear you down? I mean, I know you loved it. No, not really. Okay. It didn't me anyway. Yeah. Because uh, I would make sure that uh, when I stopped at night to get three or four hours sleep, that when I woke up, I could have a nice breakfast and a shower. And then I could go for another 20 hours or whatever without having to stop. Now, again, when you're on the road, even though you're in competition with other trucking businesses, is there a camaraderie among everybody? You're, does that? Everybody knows everybody. There's no secrets. No. And, and then you get to go to these meetings and meet everybody else. There's really no secrets. And companies like Stouffer's would put out a bid package, which is uh, two inches thick. So you'd go through there and pick the lanes you wanted and put the rates in that you wanted. And we never did want to be the lowest rate in any with any of the shippers. And it helped out because I made friends with all of the people that were, that were over the transportation in those companies and wind and dined them and... Uh, Anyway, so I would get to know on biggest part of the company, so I won't name them, uh, they would let me know what the, the lowest rate was, and I'd come in at a higher rate because always the, the number one carrier can never furnish enough trucks to cover the freight, so they would call us with our higher rates because they needed the freight moved. It is about relationships. It is about in, in every step of the way. And you're such an exceptional entrepreneur. And really, you learned all these things. This wasn't taught to you in school. This is stuff that you no. learned on the way. I mean, every step of the way, yep. you're doing this. Uh, you're learning every bit of the way. And I blame it all on my grandfather because he taught me my times tables by the time I was eight. And uh, I've always been good in math. I, I, ought to, I owe it all to him, really. <laughs> what, um, there's another question that, that comes up every so often. Truckers know all the good places to eat. Is that true? Not really. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> they know where there's good ham and eggs or bacon and eggs or something like but that. But it's out of necessity yeah. more than it is about... Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's all baloney. How many miles do you think you drove in a truck in your life? You know, I, I would put anywhere from 180,000 to 200,000 a year for about 10 years. So I don't know. And luckily, I never did ever bend a fender. I never had a wreck of any kind because I knew it was my equipment and there was no way I was going to jeopardize myself or my equipment. What was your first impressions of R.D. Hubbard when you met him? 
my first impression was the manager that Westinghouse had in here at the time, uh, another member, John Beza, and another member. We were playing cards. Dee came in while we were playing cards, and it was the in the old, before there was a clubhouse here, the, they had a little trailer house. And uh, just started talking, and from then on, him and I just became... Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Because that's definitely, from my experience of the two of you, that's your relationship. You were very, very sure. close. Had great respect for each other, for sure. Without a doubt. Yep, um, without a doubt. So you played a lot of golf with D. Yep. You also played a lot of gin yep. with, with D. Tell me about the stories you can tell. Tell me about what it was like uh, driving with D. Well, it was like you're going to get killed any second. <laughs> Especially going over Highway 74 over to uh, his house in Rancho Santa Fe. Because he would pass on the wrong side of the road. He'd pass on blind corners. It just got so when we went over there, I made sure I was the driver. One time was enough. He just scared the holy heck out of me. Well, with, with all the driving you did in your life... Uh, there was no experience like uh, being in a car with D driving. Sure <laughs> for sure, that. for damn sure. What are um, some other early recollections of Bighorn? Because what we see today is uh, amazing, and it's the house that D built. Without a doubt. But what were, I mean, this just didn't happen overnight. He had a vision. He was a great visionary. Uh, but being around him during those years in this club at those years, uh, it must have been an exciting time, too. You know, it really, it really was because uh, he knew by owning Hollywood Park and getting around in the world, he knew so many people that he got to come here. I mean, it just he started building uh, homes because there was no homes here. It just kind of took off. And it hadn't been for him, it would have never, ever, ever happened at all. Again, people see what it is today, and you just assume that it just happens, but it doesn't happen by accident. It takes strong leadership. It takes vision, as we said before. And also, some influential friends that can help you along the way doesn't hurt. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. What are some other things that went on during that time? I mean, uh, you're playing golf every day. You're playing gin every afternoon. You're taking trips all around the world. Yes, we uh, were, yeah. Tell me about some of those. Well, we went to Ireland and, uh, you know, and Scotland and uh, to Spain and uh, just... He wherever called, he decided he wanted to go. Yeah, and we, <laughs> he called it mancations. Yeah. Today... And looking back, I got a couple of stories. What are some of the people that most influenced your life? Uh, definitely my grandfather, without a doubt. Uh, I mean, he taught me everything, really, and taught me how to be honest. Told me when we were growing up on the farm, now, now this is your job, so it's got to be done. The cows have to be, milk cows have to be in the barn by 5 o'clock. 
in the morning and they got to be in there in the afternoon at five o'clock. And that's every day of the week. So definitely my grandfather was my person. Right. Yeah. And I imagine even a person like Dee influenced you to a great degree, too. Oh, yeah. Well, in a way, we, we both, he would invite me or ask me my ideas on some things. And I would tell him the way I thought and the way I, I didn't hold nothing back on him ever. Sometimes he thought it would be a good idea what I thought. And sometimes he didn't think it was a good idea, which... I, I admire him for even asking me in the first place. I mean, you know, on a lot of situations. Well, he trusted you, and I think uh, both of you, you had trust in each other. There was honesty. Oh, for sure. For there sure. was integrity, all of those things, because yep. neither one of you wanted something from the other. No. People say, well, he didn't listen. He listened a lot. It yeah. was my experience of it. Without him. a doubt. And, he took things in. That doesn't mean he'd always agree, but he took th- took in right. input. He listened. That's correct. I think that, um, uh, you know, I noticed just in watching the two of you together, he had great... Now, that doesn't mean that he wasn't always uh, on everybody at certain times. He definitely trusted you and believed in, yeah. in your relationship was very important to him. I know that. Without a doubt. How would you describe your management philosophy when you started your company? Well, the main thing is uh, the people around you, you have to get their love and respect. Treat them like human beings. Just be honest and try to do the best you can. I figured anybody that worked for me was my family. And you have to treat them like family. And that was kind of always my idea. Okay, so tell me the other side of it is what qualities did you look for in people you wanted to work, have work with you? I would just uh, tell people that uh, when I used to interview, don't lie to me and don't steal from me. If you want something, you let me know, and I'll do my damnedest to try to help you out. Um. What drives you today? My children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. Yep. Family's everything. Yep. Family is everything. I don't care. Yep. And, Dick, what would you tell after these years and your experiences in your life, what would you tell the 20-year-old Dick Simon today if you were going to talk to him? Work hard. That's all. That's all you can. And love what you do. I mean, uh, if you don't like what you're doing, uh, you're miserable. And I don't care if you're a sweep the floors or if you're a cook or a truck driver or a, an accountant. Just love what you do. And the more hours you put in, uh, I always figured the more money you're going to make. And uh, I, I never did figure that uh, I really had a job because I just, I was on call 24 hours a day. I'd sleep with uh, my telephone right by my pillow, always in case a driver needed me. And uh, at one time, we had a little over 5,000 employees, which my daughter took care of over the payroll 
for all of the uh, different terminals and the drivers. So, and I would try, it'd be hard to keep in touch with all of them, but I did my damnedest. And we had a lot of turnover too, a lot of people that would come and and uh, not put out or not want to, after they wanted to get a job, then they didn't want to drive or, or so, for some reason would either let them go or they would uh, leave themselves. When you look at the trucking business today, Dick, and we hear about the supply chain issues and all the things that go along with this, um, from your experience, what do you see the future being? How, what do you see about the situation that we're in right now? Well, I'll give you a little example. Kelly's uh, son, TJ, and his daughter, Chastity, my grandkids, started in business like uh, four years ago from nothing. And uh, Kelly let them uh, have a few tr uh, trailers, and they had a, a bought a, a few trucks. But the second year in business, uh, a lot of our old customers came back to them. They grossed $20 million in two years. And they had a 85% operating ratio. Last year, they grossed $24 million with an 89% operating ratio. So that means you're making 11% on your money. And I mean, right now, there's like three loads for every truck. And it's almost, uh, when you get a, a call, uh, it's let's make a deal because the shippers need their product shipped so bad. And there's a, definitely a big driver shortage, or always has been. Uh, so. so the future is obviously, the present is obviously good, and the future looks even better. Well, it, it takes its up and downs. It seems like every few years. Now, when I sold, the, the trucking industry was in the, it was bad. The, the rates were down. Everybody was cutting everybody's throat. And there were more trucks than there were loads. Uh, but today, it's the opposite. It made a turnaround. And even when my sons went back in business, Kelly and Lynn and King, uh, our old customers came back to them and, uh, and let them make money. And uh, so, but my grandkids are really kicking ass right now. You have to be very proud because we talked oh. about family beating everything. Yeah. But to see that carry yeah. on. And, and they went to work for me when they were 16 years old. And we were trading them in the office to be fleet managers, we called them. For instance, most of the fleet managers in the office had uh, like 25 to 30 trucks that they took care of. And my grandson had over 50, and he always wanted more. But a fleet manager has to treat those drivers good, get them to work, and treat them just like they were family. And uh, that's what we would hammer into them. These things 
we talk about all the time, great work ethic, but obviously it's in everybody's DNA in the Simon family to be hard workers. Yeah, and they have, yeah, yeah. every one of them, yeah. That's terrific. Well, I know today, too, Dick, that you're still active here at the club. You, you're uh, the unofficial official marshal of everything that happens on the golf course. You're a participant in the whiskey run every Thursday uh, and still making putts that make people money. Uh, <laughs> Lucky. And, uh, and you love uh, a good game of cards yeah. whenever we can get the group together. Yeah. So life is pretty good. I can't complain about anything, to tell you the truth. Dick, thank you so much for coming in and doing this today. And As I said at the start, it's not something you like to do is talk about yourself, but your positive attitude is so contagious around here, and you are such an important part of this club. And you are too. Thank you very much. But yes. it's just uh, it, it's a pleasure to be with you. No, it's my pleasure to be with you, and thank you so much. Okay, Dick. You bet. Dick, thank you for sharing your story. We have been fortunate as part of the process to help create an oral history of the Bighorn community. And no history would be complete without the story of Dick Simon. I am honored that you came here with honesty, humor, and humility and agreed to do this, and you trusted me enough to do something that you have never done before. You are a Bighorn treasure. And thank you to Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, who is one of the few people who has been in the Bighorn community longer than Dick Simon. And Back Nine Greens, who create works of art for your home. Thank you for joining us for this special edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. We will be with you again soon to present another episode of the Bighorn Podcast.